So back when we were uh, making all arguments gender neutral, I remember some of the uh, older feminists saying, we should have left that one turned back on man because it's men have screwed up everything. <laughs> so I tend to still sing the same words. Earth is she in the, in the original poem, and anyway. Turn back and forswear thy foolish ways. It seems as though every generation finds itself asking, when will we have an earth made fair with all her people free? When will the age of justice and righteousness finally begin? And it seems as though every generation gets the same answer. Not just yet. Not quite yet. Yet every generation must, must find something to believe in, some ethical guide for action. So what is it that we Unitarian Universalists believe in? The poem by Everett Hoagland that Brian led is my favorite Unitarian Universalist poem because it captures an essential truth about us. We try to go beyond belief. Getting beyond belief does not mean that we have to be cynical and critical and snarky, although we do enjoy that. Getting beyond belief means getting to the realization that belief is not adequate. For most people in the United States today, religion means the same thing as believing in God. But that's not true for us Unitarian Universalists. Our religion requires neither belief in God nor disbelief in God. What is important to us is what you do with your life how you make meaning as you live. So this creates some interesting side effects for us, as, for example, when, when we start teaching our kids about Jesus. For most of the United States society, Jesus is a being that you either believe in or you do not believe in. But rather than telling kids to believe or disbelieve in Jesus, we have them travel back in time to the year 29, to a village in the land of Judea, which was then a province of the Roman Empire. And that is exactly what our Sunday school is doing this spring, traveling in time back to the year 29 in the land of Judea. And this year, for the first time, I am able to take the adult worship service back to the year 29. You see, adults have an imaginative deficit that requires more energy to make them travel back in time. But with the solar panels on our roof and over the parking lot, we now have enough energy for our time machine to accommodate everyone here. So here's our official UUCPA time machine. Can you see it? If you can't see it, you still have an imaginative deficit. Plug into the power source, all right? And I'm setting the space-time coordinates for the year 29, Roman Empire, Providence of Judea, and now I need some eerie music, because time machines don't work unless you cue up eerie music. Brian and I are gonna put on some uh, guard. Because we want to kind of blend in. Yeah, eerie music, come on. I don't know, I have a hard time with these. You know, I don't have enough hair to make these. <laughs> okay. Ha! Ah, the time machine has stopped. 
We got dressed just in time, Brian. That's good. We're here. Let's open the door and step outside. Look at that. We're near the marketplace of a small village. It's dusty and hot. Everyone we see is wearing what looks like a long dress or robe and cloth head coverings. As we start walking around the marketplace, I'm glad that I have a ponytail because all the men and women have long hair. However, my lily white skin really stands out when everyone else has brown skin. This marketplace is fascinating. Look at all the craftsmen, and most of them are men, selling all kinds of goods from pottery to metalware. The craftspeople are even making some of their wares as they wait for their customers. Everything is so different from 21st century Palo Alto. Nothing has been imported from China. <laughs> Everything is made with human or animal power without any fossil fuel. It smells completely different, which is a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> and I notice that people are scratching at body lice, so I know there's no showers or washing machines. As we walk around the marketplace, you will notice children are fully integrated into the life of the community. Children don't go to school in the year 29. They help their parents make a living. Here come some shepherds bringing their sheep to market, and sure enough, there are children helping herd the sheep. There's a potter working at his trade, and there's a child nearby wedging clay. While most of the people in this marketplace seem to get along with each other, one person is obviously hated by everyone, the tax collector. A tax collector in the Roman Empire gives a new perspective on the Internal Revenue Service. The IRS, while it can be annoying sometimes, is mostly governed by the rule of law. But in the ancient Roman Empire, there was no such thing as the rule of law. A tax collector could extort as much money from the people as he thought he could get away with. And that way, he could make a nice personal profit for himself. The Roman soldiers who strut through the marketplace are an uncomfortable reminder that Judea is ruled by Rome. Judea had been independent for about a century under the rule of Judah Maccabee and his successors, but the Romans first installed client kings over Judea, and then in the year six took direct control of the once independent land. Now the current Jewish leaders, centered in the great temple of Jerusalem, have been happy to cooperate with the Romans. The Romans paid for a major renovation of the temple. And the Jews are the only people in the entire Roman Empire who do not have to publicly worship the Roman gods and goddesses. But in the village, it seems some people are not entirely happy with their Roman overlords. As we walk around, we hear some people talking quietly about their dislike of Rome, but they talk very quietly, because if you're not a full citizen of Rome, you have no legal rights. Really makes you appreciate lawyers. And we hear strange rumors going around the marketplace, like the rumors that there are bands of rebels living in the hills, waiting to sweep down and drive the Romans out of Judea.
But the strangest rumors we hear concern a man from Nazareth named Jesus. He's supposed to be the son of a carpenter, which means he should be a carpenter himself, but people are saying that he's now a rabbi, although it's not clear that he actually knows how to read Hebrew, so he can't be an official rabbi. <clears throat> Some of the rumors say Jesus performs healing miracles. And remember, in a world where only the most wealthy people can afford a doctor, everyone else depends on faith healers. The rumors have it that Jesus is a holy man, a sort of Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama for the first century. People in the marketplace repeat wisdom sayings that they attribute to Jesus. And then there are the parables told by Jesus. Short, pithy stories, well suited to oral transmission. These parables get repeated and passed along. And some of the parables that we're hearing as we walk through the marketplace make it seem as though Jesus criticizes Roman rule. The parables make it sound like Jesus treats everyone as an equal. Imagine that. He supposedly says you should treat everyone else the way you yourself would like to be treated. Well, I'm sure that we'd all like to see more of this Judean village, but I'm noticing the power levels in our time machine have dropped, and we need to leave right now. Could I have some eerie music? Well, we get into the time machine and return back to our own time. Let's hope we don't bring any body ones back. Wow, really good eerie music. Our power was actually uh, under what we expected. So now you've heard the story behind our Judean Village Sunday School program. In part, this program is our way of teaching kids about Jesus, and we make it clear that there are many different possible opinions about Jesus. We acknowledge that some people in the year 29 probably did believe that Jesus was divine, but the main arc of our story also makes it clear that Jesus was fully human and very much a product of his time and place. I should add an important point. In the Judean village program, Jesus is always off stage. That way we do not impose a limited image of what Jesus might have looked like. So the remarkable thing about the Judean village program, from my point of view as an educator, is how much the kids like it. I heard from half a dozen different parents this morning that their kid woke up and said, I really don't want to go. I don't want to go to UUCPA today. And the parents said, it's Judean Village. And the kid said, let's go now. <laughs> so when we didn't offer this program last spring, I thought we were going to face an armed rebellion. So they really like this. And why do they like it so much? i got to be honest with you, I don't think Jesus is the big draw. More important, I think, is that this is education that has not been reduced to explaining, giving reasons, or providing information. Instead, the kids get to serve as quote-unquote apprentices to various quote-unquote shopkeepers, and they get shown how to do things like simple weaving projects, small-scale pottery, brick-making, making a simple musical instrument, writing with a quill pen made out of a feather, and so on. They love choosing which shopkeeper they get to learn from this week. And while they're making these simple things, there's time to talk, to socialize with one's peers, 
and with other age groups, because we include all age groups from kindergartners to grade eight. The middle schoolers are the senior apprentices who help show the little kids how to make things, something they love to do and something the little kids really like too. And all the kids love to try to fool the tax collector who comes around shaking down the various shopkeepers. And please note that we tr do try to make different, make clear the difference between the corrupt ancient Roman tax collector and the IRS. <laughs> so embedded in all this fun are stories and thoughts that intrigue our kids. Our kids are confused by the many myths and stories and beliefs that they hear about Jesus. To our skeptical, thoughtful, Unitarian Universalist kids, the conflicting stories about Jesus and the Judean Village program help them to make sense out of the contemporary cultural phenomenon of Jesus. They learn that even in his own day, uh, people had wildly different opinions about Jesus. They learned that Jesus was a human being, which makes sense to them. They learned that Jesus was Jewish, not Christian, because after all, that's true. And they learned that Jesus cared about people who were poor or homeless, and that Jesus was willing to stand up to a corrupt regime. Our way of teaching about Jesus helps our kids confront the confusing reality that some of their friends think Jesus was God, and some of their friends think Jesus is humbug. We offer a third alternative. Jesus was a radical, rabble-rousing rabbi from Nazareth. I use that phrase repeatedly when I tell stories about Jesus to our kids, and I hear back from parents that when their conventionally Christian relatives come over for the holidays <laughs> and corner the seven-year-old child and ask that child, do you know who Jesus was? The child, the Unitarian Universalist child says, Jesus was the radical, rabble-rousing rabbi from Nazareth. Not conducive to family harmony at the holidays. But we have to repeat our messages about Jesus frequently and memorably because the wider culture around us tells our children over and over again that Jesus is a God. Even the atheists who say, I don't believe in Jesus, are still affirming that Jesus is a God that they don't believe in. Our response to this societal pressure is to try to move our kids beyond belief. Rather than focusing on historical facts about Jesus, rather than focusing on Christian dogma about Jesus, we simply tell stories about Jesus, stories that convey important truths. Take care of people who are poor or homeless. Treat everyone the way you'd like to be treated yourself. Stand up to injustice. Indeed, why should we bother children and middle schoolers with all the historical arguments for and against the historical Jesus? It makes much more sense to focus on the ethical content of the Jesus stories. Jesus cared for homeless people. He stood up to injustice. He treated everyone as an equal. When you tell powerful and ambiguous stories, you can let those stories start the process of ethical re reflection. And one way we make the Jesus stories especially powerful is by assuming Jesus was fully human. If you're a god, it's pretty easy to take care of poor and homeless people. You just go poof, and it's done. 
It's super easy to stand up against injustice, because if you're a god, nobody's going to harass you if you stand up to injustice. And it's real easy to treat all human beings as equal to one another because you're a god and they're just humans. But if you're a human, it is not easy to stand up to the oppressive forces in society, as certain Florida high school students are finding out right now. It is not easy to care for people who are poor and homeless, as we find out every year when Hotel de Zinc, the homeless shelter, stays here during the month of September. It is not easy to treat other people the way we want to be treated ourselves. When you tell the Jesus stories with Jesus as fully human, it makes those stories a lot more ethically interesting. By now, you will have noticed that this is not like the STEM education that is promoted in the Common Core curriculum and throughout much of the United States. Providing information, giving reasons, and explaining do not take center stage in the Judean Village program. We weave stories that help kids make meaning in their lives. We hope to prompt them to ask themselves, what would I do if I were faced with the massive injustice of the ancient Roman Empire? Would I openly follow someone who stood up to that injustice? Or would I try to live my own life and stand up to injustice quietly when I could do so without fear of reprisal to the rest of my family? How will I treat people who are poor or homeless? Will I ignore them so I can focus on my own needs? Or will I figure out how to do what I can to help out other people? And more generally, how will I treat other people? Will I be able to treat everyone as true equals, as the stories say Jesus did, regardless of economic status, incarceration record, race, ethnicity, religion, gender. So a kindergartner is probably not going to get to this level of moral reflection, although you never know. But last week, when we were talking with middle schoolers about Judean village, and we explained that they were going to become characters in the story, which means that they help talk about the rumors about Jesus, we told them that they have to decide as characters in the story what opinions they were going to hold about Jesus. Would their character support Jesus against the Romans? Would their character be pro-Roman instead? One of the middle schoolers said that their character would not be someone who would stand up to Roman oppression openly. That would be too dangerous. And their character also would be someone who's skeptical of any rumors about miraculous healing. Thinking about what their Judean village character would do allows middle schoolers to think about what they might do themselves in real life situations. And so it is that the Judean village program uses these old Jesus stories to help young people begin to think about some big ethical questions. And every time I teach in the Judean Village program and hear those old stories again, I find myself asking the same questions of myself. What would I have done to stand up to Roman oppression? And how much am I willing to risk today to stand up to a, oppression 
and injustice. If I had lived in the Judea in the year 29, would I have been able to treat everyone as an equal? And in today's world, what's my track record? How well do I treat people who have a different economic status, race, ethnicity, religion, gender identity, sexual orientation? How do I help people who are homeless or poor? Is there ever going to be a solution to homelessness and poverty? And perhaps as you're hearing about this Judean Village program, you've started thinking yourself about these ethical questions. This is what we Unitarian Universalists do. We listen carefully to all those amazing old religious stories, and regardless of whether we believe them or not, we use them to make meaning out of our own lives. We listen to those old, ambiguous, rich, and complex stories, and what always catches our attention are the moral and ethical questions raised in those old stories. Questions like, what will I do about homelessness and poverty? How will I stand up to injustice? Am I able to treat all people as equals? There's no final answer to any of these questions. There is only the never-ending effort to make meaning out of our lives.